0: This episode brought to you by Audible. And today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrialcom Sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level.
1: Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with Life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews. Hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their
0: lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? two! This is episode 50. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. In all walks of life, there are certain measurements where we're comparing achievements and success with some type of reference point or basis. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. It can be in business, in manufacturing, transportation, and of course, sports, where we measure things with some type of basis and we call them standards. Now, the head football coach at Clemson University, Dabo Sweeney, he even employs a mantra, the best is the standard, further exemplifying how things are measured. And our guest this episode was setting some of those standards at Clemson even before Coach Sweeney took over, and that's former quarterback Woodrow the III, but just simply known as Woody. Now Woody was at Clemson from 1997 to 2002, where he redshirted his freshman year and would eventually leave holding 53 Clemson records at the time. And during his senior season, he would also raise that bar or this standard in which dual-threat quarter quarterbacks. Quarterbacks would be measured even in years to come as he became the first quarterback in NCAA history to pass for over 2,000 yards and rush for over 1,000 yards in a single season, where he was also named first team All ACC quarterback. His career continued in the NFL as an undrafted free agent with the Dallas Cowboys and the Atlanta Falcons as a running back and return specialist, and he would win an arena football championship with the Chicago Rush in 2006 before being elected into the Clemson Athletic Hall of Fame in 2007. And now, episode 50 with Woody Dantzler. I'm honored to have you here. Yes, I'm honored to be here. No, I greatly appreciate it. And so, Woody, it's a pleasure grabbing some coffee with you this morning. You and got Nick, coffee? I got, I got water. Yes. You're going to stay hydrated then, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, I am. <laughs> Perfect. Well, one of the things I want to jump into is just recently we saw some news that Vince McMahon is going to be reinstating, restarting <laughs> the XFL in 2020. 2020, yeah. I actually saw that last night. <laughs> which I still contend I don't see the viability of it trying to compete with the NFL, even if he says he's not trying to compete with the NFL. So from your perspective, I mean, you pursued a professional career, and it was in the NFL, and it was also in the Arena Football League. So what's your perspective on the viability, knowing that most college players, their dream is ultimately to
1: be in the NFL? So do you think the XFL can work? I believe it can. It's all about marketing. It's all about finding that niche spot. So, I mean, if he's not in that same genre, you know, when you think about an NFL roster, you think about NFL teams, I mean, there's not a lot of slots open. So it'll be a lot of guys who will be out there who didn't quite make the cut or even they they got a chance and didn't make the the roster. So they're going to be out there kind of searching. So in the meantime, I mean, that may may provide a viable option for them. So it could work, but they got to understand that – They're going to be more so on the side of entertaining rather than actually playing ball. But, I mean, you can still get out there and have a little fun with it. And that's what my concern would be is that it would be
0: entertaining, but would you still have that loyalty from a fan base um, as you see in college and in the NFL? And would it be just viewed as some of these players – Could this be my opportunity to showcase my talent so I can get to the NFL? And if that happens, it just doesn't seem like the talent would stay there in the XFL. It would ultimately want to get to the NFL.
1: Right. I mean, that's probably going to be mostly everyone's goal. You'll have some guys that will accept the fact that, hey, I'm not good enough for the NFL, but I can play here. And some guys will have that ulterior motive to get to the NFL. So we'll just see how how it pans out how they get the guys rotated and get them trained and I mean it's just it's just it's going to be interesting to see how they actually work that deal. I
0: agree and I think obviously we'll see more information coming out. Yeah, uh, but yeah. Vince McMahon has the money behind it. Yeah, so he has plenty of that. Yes, he does. Now, going back to your pathway, your career, so let's go all the way back to Orangeburg, South Carolina, <laughs> small town, South Carolina and yeah. just share with us and describe some of your earliest memories of picking up a football or any type of ball and why you gravitated towards sports uh, as a kid.
1: Interestingly enough, it's pretty much my father because growing up, uh, and still to this day, I have a ton of energy. I don't do sitting still very well for long periods of time. So when I was a kid. I still don't get tired so he wanted he tried to help me focus my energy so the first thing he did was get me into martial arts so that was my first introduction into sports and then that's why I find one of my distant mentors being Bruce Lee so I absorbed myself in martial arts every time we went to the video store I was getting me a martial arts movie and what that did it begin to teach me all about body control. It taught me about the mentality of discipline and all those things that you need in life, especially with someone as high energy as myself. I had to learn self-control. And that's one thing I didn't have. I used to get in trouble at school. Not that I didn't do my work because I would finish my work, get good grades, but I would finish so quickly then now I got to sit and wait for everybody else to finish. No. So, I'm so that up. was a struggle. Yes. So I'm up in the classroom, flipping, running around, talking to people. And it was just one of those things. So now, how old
0: were you when you start, you know, admiring Bruce Lee? So when was this growing up?
1: This was man, you know. I first started playing football in '89. I think it was '88, '89 in little league. So probably around six, seven years old. Okay, so it was early. when I started martial arts. Yeah, six, seven, eight round around that age. I didn't even think about that, but yeah, somewhere around that time, you know, and that I also started. Introducing me to stuff outside of Orangeburg, because you know I, you know, go to the dojo and we practice and learn, but then we start going to these tournaments. So now I'm going to North Carolina, I'm going to Virginia, you know, we're going down to Florida. So now I'm getting exposed to stuff outside of just Orangeburg, and so many people growing up in Orangeburg, you know, if they go to Columbia. I mean, they went somewhere. <laughs> Not a lot of people leave Orangeburg, so it was it was good to me to get a lot of exposure outside of my city, see different people, different culture, different different things. So once that got started, and I guess I excelled there, then I don't know how football came about. I think my dad probably one day he just asked me if I wanted to play, and it that's where that went. We went out there and played and. So your initial
0: initial gravitation was not towards football. It was through just martial arts. It was through martial arts, and my dad asked me about football and said, okay. So as you excelled in the martial arts, so what was the highest level you got to?
1: I got to, officially, I got to my, I believe I got to my brown belt. That's the, you know, right before you get to that black belt. But I got to my brown belt, but then... I ended up leaving the dojo per se but I continued to train at the my first sensei's house for a couple of years. So there was it, there was no belts, there was no levels to achieve. We just worked on things and as I progressed, you know, we did more skills, more different things. So that was that was very very fun for me. Now martial arts is not typically
0: a something as a kid viewed as very popular. It's obviously the sports of basketball, football, right. baseball. So how were you viewed then? And did that impact your social aspect of growing up that Woody is the
1: martial arts kid? That's the thing. Now not a lot of people knew. To this day, not a lot of people know. Well, I guess they're going to know now. But I, it's come up in, in certain conversations. You know, that was my foundation. But not a lot of people knew in school that I had a martial arts background. And are you still leaning on some of those lessons that you learned through martial arts? Oh, of this body control and mm-hmm. what you talked about? Yeah, discipline. One of the biggest things is mental toughness and discipline. So I guess that's where I got the whole deal of starting where, and my wife talks, talks about it all the time. Once I set my mind to something, then I'm there. I don't need any coaxing. I don't need any follow-up. Like, for example, back in September... Uh, one of the guys I follow, uh, Eric Thomas, he's a motivational speaker, and he put out a hundred-day challenge, and he said for a hundred days, decide to do something for a hundred days and stick with it. Immediately, the first thing that came to my mind was no sugar. <laughs> I was like, that's no. tough. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> and then immediately, it's like, you nope, know, that's what I'm going to do because the first thing that came to my mind. So from September. From that day in September, it's actually supposed to end on December 25th. That's when it was supposed to end. I took mine all the way to January 1. So you're an overachiever now. <laughs> <laughs> that's how that's how I get better. I'm always pushing myself to the next level.
0: Well, I admire the no sugar for 100 days. I'm right now in a 30-day no sugar situation mm-hmm. going through whole
1: 30. I heard about that. My, uh, one of my counterparts did that at one point, yeah. That's so good. how did you feel not having sugar for 100 days? I didn't feel anything. So do you have a sweet tooth, though? I would say yes. But it was like one of those things once I decided to do it, I didn't have any real cravings. I, I th- my cravings started maybe around Thanksgiving because my, my, my wife's grandmother makes the best sweet potato pies. That's got to be very difficult during the, the holidays to do this. But I mean, that's like the first couple of days i decided the first day I decided to do it, I think we all went out for ice cream, so everybody's in the car eating ice cream, and I'm like, nope, <laughs> not having any so but um it was it was it was good, it was good for me I started like I, said, I started having those cravings around Thanksgiving, December, I started having a couple of cravings, but it was like I was at that point of I've come this far, I'm not gonna mess it up, yeah, so you obviously have
0: discipline in your life, so getting into football. Was that the only sport then that your father exposes you to and that you start playing after martial arts or are you exposed to all
1: different type of sports growing up? I was exposed to uh, a, a number of different sports. So football was that first one. Didn't really like organized basketball. I like playing basketball, but I wasn't a big organized basketball fan. Started track, ran track, you know, Junior Olympics. So that was another avenue that allowed me to go out. You know, I think that took me the furthest you know, we had track meets over in Louisiana and California, so it was, it was good at a young age to be getting out and again just seeing different people, seeing different atmospheres, and being able to compete against people from all over. So that was that. And was what events were you competing in in track? In track, I was a you know did the four by one, did the four by four. Uh when I got to high school, I started on the four hundred. And the 400 hurdles. Actually, when I first started, it was the 300 hurdles. Then the following year, they increased it to 400. So I ran the 400 hurdles in high school. I actually threw the discus and the javelin. I did the javelin in Junior Olympics. They didn't have javelin in high school, but I threw the discus. And that was so fun for me because (laughs) you would would go and, you know, I would come out. You see all these big guys out there getting ready to throw the discus. And I would come out and I'd throw one time and I would leave. Because none of them could, I never, and actually, no one, none of them could throw with me because I'm a, I'm a firm person. And one thing that I learned early with martial arts, everything is about form and technique. So my technique, I actually learned it in Junior Olympics from a Jamaican, which helped me with my, he said, he taught me about throwing. He said, I don't care. He said, what are you, he was talking about just throwing, throwing anything. He said, if you're going to throw, I'm going to show you the common denominator in throwing so he just talked to me about my hip and he showed me how the hip creates the power you know especially starting with your feet you know the firm foundation but all the power and thrust from throwing anything comes from your hip whether you're throwing a baseball a football um whatever you want to throw if you can get this down with your hip you will you'll you'll be great at it so that's what I did. I would come to the front of the circle in high school and just come out, throw one time, and I'd leave because none of them ever would be able to throw with me. It wasn't until like maybe state check the state meet I would have to spin, use my spin, but I would just come stand in front of the circle and throw the disc and. And win first you would one. win most of the events. Is I what win you're most saying. of the events, and I would go get ready for my running events. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: so, I, I guess then that. Learning those techniques, Mm -hmm. as you described about the importance of the hip, that obviously applied, as you mentioned,
1: to Mm -hmm. your ability to throw the football. Correct, correct. And uh, that's just, and it was further instilled in me with my high school coach, Tommy Brown. He was one, he told me, he he was a stickler for fundamentals. He was a stickler for learning technique. He was a stickler for doing things the right way. And he made the quote, and it stuck with me. I think he might have said it one time, but I've always remembered it. He said, if you can learn the fundamentals of your position, you can play in any system. He it no matter if you know the fundamentals of your position. So if I'm a quarterback and I know the mechanics of throwing a football, if I understand the fundamentals of, you know, locating that safety, knowing who the Mike linebacker is, you know, understanding the 3 technique from a 1 technique, you know, know if the end is if I know these fundamentals of my position, no matter what the scheme is, no matter what the um the deal is, I can you you can perform in it. So how much did you enjoy
0: learning those type of things about sports and being
1: able to apply those, it sounds like you're a true student of the game. Yes. And it, it, you apply that to everything. And again, going back to the martial arts, you know, you're thinking about stepping. If I'm going to do my front snap kick, I need to make sure when I step, you know, I slightly bend my knee. You know, I bring my hands to a certain place. So I'm actually coming through and following through with my kick the proper way. So all of that led up to when I'm thinking about any task, I want to understand the basis of it because everything starts with a a foundation. you think about a building before they start to go up? They dig down because they want to secure the foundation of the building so the building can stand strong. So that's that's attested to everything. And part of that's been a a lot of it's been a struggle trying to when you get to schoolwork type stuff and sitting still and trying to learn, you know, it was a struggle a little bit, but not really because I was just cuz I couldn't sit still but if I'm in classroom and something grabs my attention you know I'm all in It's from some of those other subjects that weren't as <laughs> interesting to That's me right. that I had to fight but um it's just you know again just learning those fundamentals and you know building on those when
0: was it then in your high school career that you become the quarterback for the team and you start getting recruited was it earlier on your freshman sophomore year or was it
1: later on into your high school career here's another testament to coach brown he good thing another part of it recruiting wasn't a big thing back then it has obviously changed it it was not a big deal you know when i signed my letter of intent you know i was in my high school auditorium the local paper came and that was about it you know it wasn't no rivals it wasn't huddle and all these other different things that they have out there now there wasn't no five-star ratings and none of that was was prevalent but uh coach brown he didn't like letters would come into the school, you know, and you think you're getting a letter or offer or something. But essentially, it's just a questionnaire. The colleges want information on you. But he never gave those out to us to our senior year. So he held those. And did he tell you guys why he held those? No. I mean, it never I never thought to ask because, again, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't all over the, the Internet. It, I don't know if Internet was that big of a deal back then. You know, I guess I'm dating myself. But Internet wasn't No, that's right you know in the 90s so it's just it's just what he did and you know hey here philly's out send him back in you know my senior year but even then this comes as a shock to a lot of people i'm not a big sports fan never have been now how is that i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i just never have been i still i can watch games now only if i know someone who's playing I could, uh, I would, I enjoy playing the game. It was fun for me. It was a challenge to get better. But as far as, you know, you got to love this game to play it. Hmm? No, you don't. Because I'm not going to say I love football. I enjoy playing. But, you know, it's just that thing that was instilled in me to whatever I'm doing, be the best at it. Give it my all. That's what kept me through. And then relationships that I built with guys, you know, one number, number one thing is I'm a team guy. So... My motivation was not really to win games. Well you I take that back. You want to win games as a competitor. But my number one motivation to playing and being the best that I can because I know that I got these guys that's on the field with me on my team that's dependent on me. So if I'm the weak if I'm slacking, then I'm doing them a disservice. So that's what always pushed me to continue to push myself to be as best to be the best. At what I was doing. So, going back
0: to the recruiting aspect of that, then, did you have these aspirations of
1: actually playing in college? I had no clue about college football, honestly. I didn't know, I mean, yeah, South Carolina's right down the road. I actually, we have University of um, South Carolina State University is right in my backyard. You know, we went to the game sometimes, but it never really clicked to me that, hey, you can play college ball and get a scholarship. I, I was, I'm, still kind of pretty naive to a lot of things myself even in times. but I was naive to all that. I didn't know Clemson didn't know Carolina I didn't, didn't So you didn't me. follow them nope. growing up did you have teams that you did follow even from a
0: professional standpoint
1: I followed um, well most of watching the 49ers with my dad Joe Montana that crew and you know my dad was a 49ers fan and then when I got into sports the only team that I actually had that I would say I had was the Houston Oilers because I follow Warren moon. Like he was the reason why I wore the number one, you know, one of the, fir- one of the, one of the earlier, you know, black quarterbacks in the game, you know, they talk about, you know, it was a cerebral position and black folks couldn't play it because you had to think, you know, you can go do everything else on the outside, but you can't play quarterback. And he was one of those who took that long role. you know, didn't think he could do it out of college. He went to Canada, he went to um, Canada and show what he can do, and then came back and had a great career. Now he broke the mold. Yes, you know, him and guys, and then also Randall Cunningham. You know, I just watched his, um, his. Uh, I guess it was 30 for 30, or something Some special he had. So it was good to just, you know, watching those guys play. But Warren Moon was my guy, and I followed him, the Houston Oilers, that was my team. And then when he left there and went different places, you know, I followed him, but then once he retired, then I have since not have a team since then. It's amazing to me that (laughs) sports has been so
0: big to you, but it seems to be that it just evolved and was never a true focal point for you. Correct. Correct. Well, then how did it come about that you signed your letter of intent with Clemson
1: and why you chose Clemson then to pursue a career in college playing? Well, the thing is, you know, coming from meager um, standing, my father's been disabled from Vietnam. As long as I can remember, I remember taking trips down to um, the VA hospital in Charleston, you know, so he couldn't work. I mean, he did he did odd jobs. You know, he was a great mechanic and he 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 was he found a way to bring money in. Uh, My mother worked third shift, 30 plus years at a wire processing plant. So, I mean, I wouldn't know it, but I mean, I had everything I needed never went without, you know, we had a place to stay, food, you know, clothes, everything that I needed. And then some stuff that I I just wanted, you know, we always had it. So, but I still knew that we couldn't afford college in the back of my mind. I knew we couldn't afford college. I didn't know how I was going to get there once I really got this realization that, Hey, after high school, next step is to go to college. And then senior year, then you, get the letters, and then you find out, hey, I can get a scholarship for this. So you had a desire to go to college, though? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, because I would have been, I wanted to be the the first, I was the first one to actually get that four-year degree from a college in my family. So. And did you have a
0: plan of what you wanted to do in college and what you wanted to be in a
1: a career perspective? I was floating through, I, I, I can say it, I floated through college because my whole thing, I, I thought I wanted to own my own sporting goods store. That's how I ended up getting, you know, the marketing degree and business degree. And interesting story there. I <laughs> I came to the end of my college career with two credits left to graduate and realized this is not what I want to do. <laughs> well, that's a little late in your college career to come to that conclusion. <laughs> yeah, but luckily, you know, with... um with taking the full course load during the year and then going to going to summer school, you know, I was able to graduate early. So I still had another year and a half to take up something. So, you know, I started a, my mind. I got my minor in counseling because I love people and I, enjoy, and I and I figured out that, you know, working with young people and working with men is what I want to do. So counseling seemed like the logical step. So that's where I went. As you know, after I graduated, then I just, while well, I'm still, because I still had another year and have to play. So I just started that career and, and got that going. Now let's go back to the actual playing
0: at Clemson. And again, mm-hmm. you sign your letter of intent. Were they recruiting you for quarterback position or yes. was it an
1: athlete position? No, they actually recruited me for quarterback. And um, how I got to Clemson you know, two words, Rick still. <laughs> <laughs> well known in Clemson he football history. Is, yeah, he's the man. I mean, when you talk about genuine, caring, straight up and down, truthful, I mean, he was, he was the reason I went to Clemson because, again, I had no understanding of what Clemson was, who Clemson was, what their track record was. I had no clue. But when he came in, he was just. What was it about his message to you that he was real? He never lied. What he said he was going to do, he did it. You know, he he just was real. He was genuine. He was truthful. And he was able – we established a trust. And I felt like I could trust him. And that was – that ultimately led me to Clemson. Because I knew if I went there and I was with him, I'd be taken care of.
0: And you get to Clemson, you redshirt your freshman year, mm-hmm. and then get your first action uh, the following year, 1998. But you become a starter in 1999. So walk us through that kind of transformation of the transition you had to go through your first time on campus and being a redshirt and then eventually becoming the starter.
1: That first year was, um, was rough. They, they had actually brought in a new officer coordinator in my first year in 97, uh, Steve Insminger. So, you know, his claim to fame, Georgia, Eric Zire, you know, he, oh my gosh, but Steve, he, he was a good one. I, I enjoyed him. He really opened my eyes up to learning football because I'm coming from shotgun, no huddle. You know, if I'm calling to play at the line of scrimmage, I'm saying red four. That's everything. Linemen know what they're doing. Receivers know what they're doing. and Pretty I'm, simple. I'm pretty simple. Then we come in to um, <laughs> Z-split, waggle right, 464, X-Cross, Z-Dig, um, What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm even lost right now. And then you and you go into, okay, if it's cover two, you're going to work this progression. If it's cover three, this is your progression. You know, if it's one, we might have to check out and do th- Total mind blown. It was like, I don't know if I can do this. So you feel that you were overwhelmed? I was very much overwhelmed. But then again, going back to what I was, you know, my dad, he was like, well, What's your and I at the time I hated him for it, but now I appreciate it. He never gave me a straight answer. He never told me what to do. He would ask a question to stimulate me to think and figure it out for myself. And if he, and even if he saw me going the wrong way, he would stimulate with a question to try to steer you back. Yes, potentially. Exactly. Exactly. And um, every now and then, if I was going way off the beat path, he would say, "Oh no, this is what you need to come." But for the most part, he would just ask a question, I will make a suggestion, and so I can figure it out. So, he, you know, you just, I remember having that conversation, talking. So, what's your alternatives here? And you think about the alternatives. So, you don't get it. What you gonna do? You gonna leave school? No, I can't leave school. You got, you got, you got so um, you, could, you keep, finally you get to the point of well. I got to learn it. I got to figure it out. Okay, now, you know, you got to do it. So how will you do that? So figuring out the what to do is always easy. Figuring out the the how that can pose a challenge. But when you figure out the what to do, again, that's easy. Figuring out the how that can be challenged. But when you have your why, it pushes you to make sure you figure out the how. So ultimately, knowing your why is crucial. Is crucial in anything. Yes, you got to know your why or else, you know, after the excitement of what you started, the motivation, the, the initial motivation has has subsided, then you're stuck in the, well, not stuck, but you're still in that situation. So you got to have your why to keep you pushing. What was your why then as you're
0: contemplating, looking at, man, this is going to be so difficult to learn? Was your why to be the best quarterback you could be for the team or what was your
1: why my why at the time you know I really looked at my parents you know looked at my father we had a great relationship and I did not want to disappoint that's one of my biggest things no matter you know my parents didn't want to disappoint them but anyone I do not do well with letting people down (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. I did not, I do not. So my, my primary motivational factor was making my parents proud. If I leave school and quit because it got hard, then I, I let my parents down. And there's no way I can go back to Orangeburg, sit in my, in my house with my mom. and my. No, I can't do that. That's not an option. So you need to figure this out and learn it. And at the time, I was fortunate enough to be there with a brilliant individual by the name of Brandon Streeter. <laughs> Obviously, Clemson people know Brandon Streeter yeah. and how he's involved with the team currently yeah, so, as well. And, you know, um, also, you know, Neilon was very Nealon Green. He was a starter in 97. So he was very instrumental in helping me along as well. You know, I give a lot of credit to him because he, he kept it real. He was he was one who would give it to you straight. And, you know, he was he was a smart guy. And then, you know, but I had a lot of sessions also with Brandon. You know, just if I had a question, we we're on the sideline as, you know, we're practicing. He calls the play. I'm talking to Brandon. He said, OK, you know, this is the play. This is what you're thinking. Oh, look at it. Where does it say he's asking me questions? And, and that's how I got through it. So, he, you know, he taught me a lot. And I know a lot of times you know, we hear the term, you know,
0: Monday morning quarterback and people can easily – evaluate somebody's performance after the fact and oh this is what should have happened this yeah. is what should have been done but as you mentioned there's this whole playbook that you're having to learn mm-hmm. it's extremely complicated when was it then that the light bulb went on and you started feeling comfortable i'm getting it now i'm starting to understand what i'm looking for and you know, especially reading the defenses and learning the playbook.
1: Honestly, that didn't take place until after '98 when um, Coach West left and Coach Bowden came in. Because for the most part, my freshman, you know, I was over there scout team quarterback, so I didn't get a lot of reps. I'm someone who has to be hands-on. I need to actually do. That's my. That's the way I'm a I'm, I learned that way. So I need to be hands-on. I need to actually be actively involved to learn. So being over there on scout team and then coming over and just kind of watching, you know, and then sitting in the film room, you know, I learned a little bit, but I need to get I need to be hands on. So I didn't get a lot of reps at that time in 97, 98. I got a few in 98 and, you know, they kind of restricted things for me, which didn't help a lot because I wasn't exposed to everything. Even you know I had a quote unquote woody package when I go into the game. You know I had about fifteen plays. You know my first time ninety eight against Furman. I go in. I got fifteen plays. They only called two, and both were running plays. Okay. <laughs> so we went all the way down the field with two running plays. With me running the ball, handing the ball, out, and it was crazy. And then finally, I threw the ball. It was. It was. It was. It was so funny. I finally threw a ball to Rod. He caught it and, you know, got about 15, 20 yards. And everyone in the stand explodes, I guess, because they're like, yeah, he, he can throw the ball. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's one of those moments. And um, but getting back to what you asked when did the light on? It, it turned on when uh, Coach Rodriguez came in with, uh, with Coach Bowden. And I actually began to get reps. And I started to because Coach Rod, honestly, he's a great teacher. He was a great teacher in the film room. And as we're talking through things and we get out there and we go out and implement the things. And one day it was it was a a scrimmage and it just uh, it just clicked like everything slowed down. And I saw I mean, I saw everything I was anticipating. I'm I'm even able to see, you know. Okay, I see this corner over here at the corner of my eye. He's trying to show like he's playing press man. But, no, that back foot is kind of back, so he's probably going to bail. So, it's probably zone. You know, stuff like that you start to see. You know, and it's, it's just um, it was just amazing. Everything slows down. So, you know, safety sitting here. They're kind of moving a little subtle. So, okay, they're about to roll down this way. So, this guy is going to be open because this is what we got called. So, it, that day it just all clicked. You know, I remember Coach Rod said, uh, you figured it out, didn't you? You know, so – that's um, That's when it all happened. And that's how it started happening.
0: What about, though, when Tommy West is fired? And
1: how did you find out about it? And what was your reaction? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting reaction. I, uh, this is how this is how I met Jesus, honestly. Okay. Because how this whole thing turned out, it was one of those things of, you know, I'm naive to the whole situation. Still pretty naive. And I remember one night just like, because they were just... I've been having this empty feeling. I've been just having this question. You know, I went to church my whole life, was in church, got baptized, sang in a choir, but really didn't understand what all that meant. And then one night, I guess I just been having this pressing question on me. And I guess that's the spirit of God was, you know, pricking me. He's like, okay, here I am. I need we need we need to really be formally introduced. So one night I just say, hey, you know, God, if you're real, I need to know I need a sign. I need concrete evidence that you're that you're real. I say the next day, but it probably was the day after. But I'm pretty sure it was the next day we got the announcement that Coach West was, was going to be fired at the end of the season. So it was like everything that's flowing through our mind is, okay, I got a scholarship. Coach West gave me a scholarship. If he leaves, do I keep my scholarship? I, I'm not going back. I can't go back to Orangeburg. You know, what's going to happen? When I, I want to get my degree, and I'm just – so my thing is, you know, God, if you're real and I ask you for a sign, you, I don't want to do what you because you mean. I, I can't. Uh. <laughs> but that turned out to be – the best thing that ever happened to me because that crew transitioned out. Coach Bowden came in, brought his crew, and along with him was a guy by the name of Darren Bruce. He was the team chaplain. That's the first time we actually had a team chaplain. So, I mean, we had people come in and speak, you know, try to give a little Bible lesson, but it wasn't very impactful. But then he came in, and for the first time, I heard the gospel. Do this, you go to heaven. Do this, you go to hell. Ain't no gray. Either you in or you're out. Jesus is the way. Period. And I just remember after that first meeting, that first Bible study, I was hurting so bad. It's like my whole body was aching. And I worse than any two a day soreness, worse than any hit well, I don't get I don't really get hit, but worse than anything I've ever experienced. And you know, I remember just when he said at the end of the talk, he was like, Okay, if you want to commit, you know, come on up. It was like no hesitation and went up and, you know, I was just talking to him. And I remember talking to him afterwards. He was just talking about that's called conviction. And he was telling me then, he said, you, you have a mantle, you have a calling. And I guess, I guess that's why that conviction was so strong on me to go up and fully commit to God. And from that point on, I've been full speed ahead with the things of Jesus. And so you committed that day? That night, yes. Yeah, no hesitation. And, you know, going back, hey, baby, we, no more sex, you know, no more this. And, you know, Eric started cutting everything out. And, you know, it was just – How did thing. some of your teammates respond to that? They didn't resp- – I mean, it wasn't a negative response because I was still – again, I was, I was a good kid. You know, never got any real trouble. Never drank, never smoked in my life, never in trouble with the law, never rebellious, again, respecting my parents. But still – Good doesn't get you into heaven. You know, Jesus gets you there. So I was able to understand that there's a, different, there's a different level. So now I didn't change. I mean, my demeanor was still the same. I was still the fun-loving, outgoing, high-energy kid, but then purpose started to take over. So I started to be able to, you know, notice when my teammate was down and go over and, hey, and pick them up. We did that a little bit more. Started to thrust myself into that leadership role because of things that was being shown to me.
0: And so did you feel differently inside? Was that physical pain gone, though, that you had mentioned? Yeah, it
1: was just initial, that whole thing of getting up, you got to go. You know, I can't sit in this chair no longer, you got to go. So, yeah, it, it subsided, you know, after that night, and it was just, let's go. How important has your faith been in some of these
0: tough times, you don't win every game. There's a lot mm-hmm. of negativity that yes. comes from fans. And did you lean on your faith then to be able to help
1: you through the adversity that you're facing? Yes. I was gifted with a unique perspective. You know, I am, I'm not easily rattled. I'm not very emotional. I'll say that. Did I say that right? I guess outwardly emotional. I don't. I'm, again, disciplined, self control. You, know, you don't it, wear your emotions on your sleeve. No, I rationalize very well. So I'll take a situation. I will break it all the way down to its simplest form and say, okay, this is what I control, what I can control. I'll handle this part. This I can't control. I let it go. So instead of just letting it go previously, now I give it to God. So that was the biggest difference. Okay, because, you know, he talks about, you know, you know, take my yoke upon you. You know, his yoke is easy. His burdens are a light. You know, he gives us the insight and the ability to handle any situation, but he tells us not to take on the burden of it. He said, give that to me. Let me hold it. Because he's him. the strongest. Yes. So, again, I mean, I, I, take, it, I take everything in stride. I, I break it down, make it simple, control what I can control, and I give everything else to him.
0: A lot of people don't have that perspective. And obviously in yes. a period of time – in college, mm-hmm. um, I know for me, it was much later in life. I'm 46, and it wasn't until I was 36 <laughs> that I gained that perspective and mm-hmm. found my faith in Christ as well. So I admire that you have been able to do that in an earlier age, because there's a part of me that I regret that I didn't find that earlier on, but right. life is life. and Timing is timing. You that's what It right. happens when it's supposed to happen. Yeah, it really is. Now, going back to you, fi- you find your faith and you're starting to excel on the, the football field, having success, and obviously one of the great plays in Clemson history is the 50-yard catch yeah. or 50-yard throw to Rod Gardner that he catches. with Eight seconds left to set up the winning field goal against the hated rival for Clemson, South Carolina. So walk us through just what was going on as you get the ball back with under a minute to go and what the atmosphere was like and how the team was feeling at that time and the communication that you were having with the players.
1: Mm-hmm. Wasn't very, wasn't much said. I remember it clearly we went, we just went up, they're driving down, Derek's running the ball, ball pops out, you know, they're recovering the end zone touchdown. And interestingly enough, it was just one of those things of I just had a calming come over me. And I felt and it was like it was undeniable. It was like, we're not losing this game. It was just undeniable to me. I was like, we're not losing this game. And have you ever felt like that? No, never, never felt that before. And I was like, we're not losing this game. And I remember just saying it to myself. We're not losing this game. I should kind of verbalize it to myself. And then we're walking over and I look and I see Kyle, I see TJ, I see Will. And they, I guess they saw something. When they looked at me, I didn't say anything. And they looked at me and I just went like this, and, you know. And I just saw them just kind of, okay. So, and Travis, my right-hand man, I just, we, you know, I walked up to him. And we went out on the field. And it was just one of those things of that's how it progressed. And we just went down the field, through the pass. And... I didn't see the field goal. Oh, you didn't? Mm-hmm. So where were you? I was headed to the locker room. Explain that. Because I knew what was about to happen. I didn't want to be in the pandemonium and the foolishness of, not foolishness, but the craziness of the crowd rushing the field. I just, I wanted to get out. Of it. I don't, I still, I still don't like being around a lot of people. <laughs> I don't like the crowd. I don't like pandemonium. It was, and I knew it was going to be nuts when he kicked that field goal. I still knew there was probably going to be some time left on the clock. And they were had to kick the ball off, which you know they did kick the ball off, and then all that. But I wanted to be out of all that mess, so I was in the locker room. And I remember as I was as he kicked the ball, and I was going. I heard the crowd erupt. And so you knew, you yeah, already knew. So I was in the locker room. Matter of fact, I think by the time everyone got in there, I was already showered and changed. <laughs> <laughs> now you mentioned that you're you don't like crowds.
0: But you're playing in front of 80,000 people.
1: Yes, they're in the stands. They're not on me. And there's another unique thing. I, you know, I've learned focus over the years. So when I'm, in any, when I'm on the field, I don't hear anything but what I'm supposed to hear. I hear my teammates talking. I hear my coaches talking. But we can be where we're at. We, I could have played in Seattle with the 12th man. And not be affected by the crowd because I wouldn't hear them. And that's just how I, how I played all the time. I, ne- I never heard the crowd. And do you feel that some of that focus and does that go back to your martial arts days of learning the discipline and the control oh, yeah, that you those, talked about? I think wall sits had a big proponent of that. Okay. <laughs> but it's just one of those things of, okay, uh, yeah, my legs are burning. But, okay, let's focus here. On, I'm focusing on my technique. If I keep my feet. This wide apart, and I sit, make sure I'm straight, you know, I'll be all right. So now I'm starting to get over the fact that my legs are burning and wanting to give out. So it's just that focus, that discipline, that understanding to be able to focus on what needs to be focused on. I've read several times that Tiger Woods,
0: even on the first tee, he gets nervous. And we're talking about arguably the greatest golfer in history from your perspective, you're talking about this focus. What was it like for you then first taking the field in that first snap? Did you
1: have butterflies or what was your feelings? The two games, I was not nervous. I played awful. One was in high school. One was in college. So yes, I get nervous all the time. And that's pretty much my drive and You know, just to be totally transparent because I I can feel this. Someone's going to hear this and they're going to they're going to relate. I am very insecure. My insecurities drive me because. You would everyone see that guy on Saturdays or on Sundays, you know, going out there, performing at a high level. And they wouldn't think, you know, you think as a QB performing that way, oh, he's got. Tremendous confidence. Yes, I had confidence in my abilities, but I prepared like no other because of okay, because of my insecurities. I didn't, uh, you know, I had a great game. Oh, can I? I'm now got to go do it again. They are expecting this out of me, and you know, what if I don't? What if I can't throw the ball like I did before? You know, what if I can't make the reads? And you know, just all this playing in my mind, trying to distract me. So what do I do? I focus in on making sure I know my plays in and out. I make sure I understand what's going on and what kind of defenses they played. I make sure that when I condition myself, you know, my condition level is so far beyond that I because I refuse to get tired. You know, one of the things I did in summer training and still even to this day, I mean, we, I will get to a point to where the normal times wasn't good enough for me. I could easily do it. So there were two whistles, everyone else's whistle and my whistle and I let the strength coach decide where my whistle was. So he blow the whistle, everybody else go, and then he blow the whistle for me, and my, I had to catch everyone and um, uh, make the time. So that's just the level of, of preparedness that I did, know, I really pushed myself to excel. I didn't settle for, okay, once the drills got easy, okay, we need to make this tougher. I need, I need to do more. So how did you
0: judge yourself after games? I mean, Were there games that even though statistically it
1: looked great, oh, would you beat yourself up? Um, I, uh, that's uh, one of my biggest things. I'm very, very self-aware. I'm my own worst critic. I know a lot of people say that, which is true. I mean, you're your own worst critic because I'm going to remember things. I'm going to evaluate even within the plays that I'm doing. I mean, I'm thinking through and I'm like, oh, shoot. But I have to move on. But even after the game, you know, you're on that bus, or you headed back to, headed back to the airport, or you headed back to your dorm, and you are just thinking through the game. It's like, man, I missed this. I didn't do that. I could have did that. You know, yeah. I. I you think about the, the uh, the great plays that were made, or the plays that were made when you dig it. But it's just the human psyche. I don't know why we tend to focus on the negative so much. Like, I, I read this thing where this teacher was, he had a point to make, so he did a test. He took it, and he had 10 problems, and he missed one. And he put it up for the class, and the class looked at it, and, and then the class started ridiculing him that he missed a question. And that allowed him to make his point. He said, now, there are 10 questions up there. I got nine right, but y'all jump on me about the one I got wrong. And I don't know why we as humans, as people do that, we focus on the one bad thing outside of the nine great things that we've done. So it's just one of those things that you have to learn to put things in perspective. Okay. Yeah, I did mess up here. I know how to correct that. And I can, what I did do well, let's continue to build here, but let's sure this up. So it taught me how to, not to be so down on myself that I go into a funk or go into a tank, go into the tank, but I'm able to take that learning opportunity to get better.
0: And I think that's invaluable to have that type of perspective. And I agree with you that unfortunately we do focus on these negatives too much. I even simplify it just looking at the weather report. You'll <laughs> often see they'll say, oh, it's a 30% chance of rain or 40% chance of rain that's actually a 60% chance or 70% chance of sun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. let's look at it from a positive standpoint. Right, right, Now, talking about some of those memories, I know you somewhat beat yourself up and very critical of yourself, but what are some of the best memories you've had at
1: playing at Clemson and any particular plays that stand out? I don't know if anything, any particular plays stand I guess I normally answer this question by saying you always remember your first. And, you know, my first rushing touchdown and first passing touchdown came in the same game against, uh, in, not NC State, but North Carolina, you know, in nine, that was 99. That was a year. Um, my God, my, my, my poor friend, he had the worst year that year. That's how I ended up starting a lot that year. Cause streeter, he just, you know, spring ball dislocates his ankle, recovers from that, you know. North Carolina game where I came in, I got my first two scores, breaks his collarbone, came back from that Georgia Tech game, dislocates his hip, you know, I mean, all that in one year and still came back and played in the bowl game. So you talk about a trooper, you know, I, I really looked up the street and I admired his courage and his demeanor because he, he was a never no-quick kind of guy. But, um, yeah, that North Carolina game, that's when I got in there, it was – same old thing, you know. I had kind of proven myself a little bit, but they were still, when I got in, street and went out, they kind of condensed the play. They weren't calling like They were playing it safe. And Then finally, I was like, I remember, because everything caught the field, you know, pick up the phone, talk to Coach Rod, he'll give us insight. And I'm like, okay. I said, Coach, we got to play. <laughs> and he said, and he said, you know what? You're right. So, and they said, you know, next series, you go out, and we scored. That's when I threw my first touchdown to Rod. You know, play-action pass. He did a double move, went down the sideline, caught it, touchdown. And then in the end of the, year, end of the game, in the ceiling of the game with a quarterback draw, you know, around a touchdown there. So those are probably my two most memorable. I would say that's memorable for me because first score in, in college. Of course, I know that yeah. had to be special. Yes. And another
0: special thing that you had uh, in your senior season, you're the first quarterback in history to throw for over two thousand yards mm-hmm. and rush for over a thousand yards in the same season. Yeah. Now, obviously, offenses have changed over the years since you played, and right. it's a different era. But it's a different animal. Do you idea. look back at that and really understand how special that was
1: that year? I do, and I'm gonna tell you who made it special for me, Kyle Young, because. I remember on the sideline, because it wasn't a big deal to me, honestly, and he came over. He said, um, I don't know if it was at the beginning of the game or midway through, but he said, hey, Woody, I know what kind of guy you are. I know what kind of player you are, but understand this. We're going to get this today. We're going to get it for you I want you to understand how much this means. I mean, it's going to be great for your career, yes, but it's going to be great for Clemson. It's going to be great for this team. It's just going to be a new mark. He said, hey, you're going to be a, you're going to be a trivia question. He said, we're going to go do this today. And it was like right then and there, I saw the impact of, you know, what getting that. Because it's not even a record. They call it a record, but it was a, it was a standard because it's never been done before. So I, I was the first one to set a mark to set a precedent in college football and that's that's huge. That I mean that that's just huge. So we went out there, we were able to get it get it done. You know, so that was that was a great yeah, I do understand the the impact of what that meant to college football. Yeah, and that
0: it it did set the bar and mm-hmm. I think you were a motivational point for many quarterbacks getting into college and what they wanted to accomplish because uh, you had set that bar because yeah. people did talk about it.
1: Yeah, you really think about it. At that time, there were not too many shotgun no huddle teams. We, Coach Rod, you know, he was one of the first, you know, and just think, even though when I was in high school, we were probably the only team in South Carolina or in our, that did shotgun no huddle. So on two different standpoints, high school one of the first to do it um in college one of the first teams to re- but now I mean it, that this style of offense has exploded now everybody's doing it but you know we were really one of the first to come out with the shotgun no huddle. So I presume then some of that experience in high school obviously helped you in college then. Oh yeah. Yeah, it was because that's what got my conditioning cuz I don't think any conditioning could top what I did in 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 high school, and it was my high school officer coordinator who taught me about the how impactful I have to be to be able to um, have my conditioning up. So what he would do as at the enterprise, when we're doing conditioning, after we run either our gas or our, our fifth lap around the field, either he first started me doing it where I would, at the end when I stopped, call a play or just talk. And then after a while, I started doing it while I was running. Because his thing was, he was like, Well, listen, we're doing shotgun, no huddle, and you need to be able to communicate when you're winded. So let's say you do a 40 yard run, it gets called back for holding. So you got to come back and you got to talk, and they need to understand you. So that was implemented into my game to be able to, okay, yeah, I'm winded, but I know how to take that deep breath in my nose, exhale. and then clear to communicate what I need to communicate. And that all started, you know, with Coach Norman yeah. back in high school. So And just going back to techniques. Going back to techniques. So when I got to Clemson, you know, I really pushed myself. So actually when I'm running, I um I'm <laughs> I'm talking. And like what'd it be quiet? <laughs> like one of the biggest things, like I really remember um Matt drills, you know, they've gotten easy on the guy because Matt used to be at five o'clock in the morning. And you have these stations when you go around and, each, and no one really wanted to go because they're three minute stations and you just go. Coaches run them. And I remember Coach Rod is a competitor. I mean, he is a fierce competitor. So we're in the drill one day and we my group went the whole three minutes because the whole time I'm talking to Coach Rod. And tell them how easy the drill is. How my grandma could do that. I mean, this is so. easy. What, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, you need to make this house, need to get somebody else. Go get Doug. Somebody else need to run this drill. This, and so he was intent on breaking me. And unfortunately, <laughs> the rest of the guys in the group had to suffer with me. But uh, it was just—it's just. Hey, my you were worst. making them better. Uh, we, we, yeah, I, we. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. So, but yeah.
0: Now, you mentioned. You really don't have this true love of football and that it's just this, you know, burning passion. Why then continue to pursue a professional career
1: playing football? Because at one point I just said, you know what, football has brought me this far. I'm going to see how far it's going to take me. And then right around my senior year, I understood, you know, again, you know, committing to Jesus. I understood now at this point yeah, I'm not I don't have a big love for I mean, I don't love I enjoy it a lot, you know, because why else would you put yourself through all the stuff that goes on with it? But I understood now that this is building a platform for me for what I'm called to do. So now I have is I will make your name great. So now people hear the name Woody Dantzler and a bell goes off. They recognize. So now they're going to listen. If I'm somewhere speaking, or if I'm talking, or if I'm conducting something, you know, that it brings notoriety. It gives a platform. Now people will listen. So now I'm able to share the gospel and talk with people about Christ. or even just, you know, just speaking into someone's life, you know, because of the notoriety that the name brings, that the, that the game has brought me the game of football. You know, I'm able to really reach out, help people and push them into their 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 destiny. Because again, you mentioned you're you like connecting with people, yes, and
0: developing these relationships. Yes. And what a great opportunity with your platform. Exactly, I,
1: I love teaching. I love seeing someone at one point and know, knowing that I was able to help them unlock what's inside of them and go to the next level. Especially when they can't see it, and then all of a sudden that light goes off and they're like, "Oh, I can!" And then you see. Full speed ahead from that point on. That's just one of the greatest things. Well, then what about
0: coaching then? Coaching football. (laughs) Did that ever cross your mind? It has,
1: but there's so much in coaching that I don't like. Like what? Everything (laughs) outside of coaching. (laughs) So, yeah, you coach, you do instructions on the field. I mean, then you got the meeting, you got the preparation, you got the film study, you got all this other excess stuff that goes along. Mm Mm-mm. I'm a family man. I want to be around my kids. To be around, I, the long hours on the practice field. I mean, that's not my cup of tea. Now, I did coach with uh, my high school coach for about four years. Enjoyed it. You know, but again, that time commitment is just, it was, it was more than I wanted to commit to. Now, the instruction on the field, interacting with the guys day in and day out, thoroughly enjoyed it. But everything else that goes along with coaching, it wasn't me. I remember Coach Sweeney asking me about coming on as a GA and I was like, no, no, <laughs> uh, that's that's too much of a commitment. I would love to work. You know, I still help out with Clemson as a, you know, from time to time as a mentor and, you know, helping out with some of the guys. And, but that to take on that whole mantle of coach. No, nah, that was too much for me.
0: Yeah. And what's your relationship with Coach Sweeney and how you view things that he's doing at Clemson?
1: He's the right guy for the job right now because not only is he bringing football skills, he's bringing life skills. He's restored a belief to the program that has been lost. You know, and like he said, once you instill a sense of belief in a group of individuals, you'll watch them take over. And I just, I just listened to something he said. It was a record, and I don't know exactly when it was, but he was just talking about, you know, 2008, 2007. Nah, we you know, we didn't have the belief that we have now. You know, that had to be cultivated. And now you can see when, them guys, when those guys step on the field, they expect to win. You know, they don't get that. They, I mean, no matter what happens, no matter the situation, you know, when you think about it, a few years ago, those close games, Clemson lost because they didn't have that thing that they have now but now and everybody talking about oh they played them too close but you know what they won somehow or another they'll find a way to win if they had they weren't playing as well as they should offense wasn't doing what it's supposed to they they were able to put the drive together to score defense wasn't playing as well they were able to lock barons and get a stop you know so they just they have a belief in themselves and in one another to win, and they expect to, and that's what he's brought back.
0: Yeah, he has definitely instilled that belief that anything is possible, Mm -hmm. and you can do it, and that's actually after watching the team win the national championship, again as a Clemson grad Mm -hmm. as well, that moment hit me that anything is possible Mm -hmm. when we beat Alabama, and I was one of the driving forces that I realized – I'm gonna start a sports podcast. There you go. Because anything is possible. Mm-hmm. Now, from your perspective as a quarterback, that last drive, what were you seeing
1: as <laughs> Clemson is driving down the field to score? My wife was going to hit me. She's she's the one of the biggest Clemson fans you will find. I mean, she's passionate about her tigers. And I remember we were sitting there and Hertz just scored. And I laughed. And she turned and looked at me with this menacing, with her menacing eyes and said, what, you're laughing? what are you laughing for? I didn't say anything. I didn't say, I didn't say a word. And then, long story short, they get the ball, they go down, they score. And I said, that's why. They left them too much time. And, you know, she just, she just looked at me and she just kind of shook her head. <laughs> and it was interesting enough that I, she, she brought it up because I didn't see it. But she said, you know, Deshaun did the same thing you did. And I was like, what are you talking about? He, when he did his interview, he said, when they scored, he smiled and said, they left us too much time. <laughs> 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 I did, because I, I, I think I went to another room or something and came back and I missed that part. But he said, yeah, he said, um, they left us too much time. And He, he went and talk, went on to talk about what he told the guys. Let's go be great. And, you know, and that's what they did. You know, you, you see things, you, you watch the whole game. Clemson had had the momentum. And they were pretty much doing whatever they wanted to do come that fourth quarter as far as on offense. And when I saw over 209 left on the clock, I was like, "Ah, bad move, Jalen. You should (laughs) have (laughs) failed. But um, it was one of those things I said, they left them too much time. And, you know, they went down there and they scored and they were great. Mm -hmm. One second left on the clock. That's right.
0: When you watch games then, do you look at it from a quarterback's vision? Yes. And do you – question what they're doing, what throws they're making at times?
1: Yeah, I mean, you still got that. You know, as soon as they come up to the line, I'm looking at the safeties, checking out the front seven, seeing what's going on, see if I'm checking out any movement, and then watching, you know, to see what the formation is and try to guess what maybe they would do. If they're going to run, they're probably going to try to do this, you know, if they're going to pass ball, they need to look at. You know, so yeah, I'm actually I'm, I'm going through those days. It doesn't leave you. You you, you sit there. That's fundamental. As you see them walking up, so you you're going through your progression, checking out the safeties. What are the corners doing? What are the linebackers? What front are they in? So yeah, you still do all that. I have to ask about your time with the
0: Dallas Cowboys as mm-hmm. a Dallas Cowboys fan and one of the most memorable. <laughs> Kickoff returns I've ever seen, and I still contend it should have been NFL play of the year against the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah. What was that like and the feelings afterwards? You're wearing America's team
1: star, basically. Right. So walk us through that. I think it was bigger for my barber at the time than it was for me <laughs> because he's a huge Cowboy fan. So, you know, I made Allen's day, and it was, it was great but uh, it was just the the next chapter in my life for me. So, again, I was at that point of, you know, football's taking me this far. Let's see where else it's going to take me. Uh, so I was there. I got to meet a lot of people and, you know, really get out there and see the professionals. So, you know, I'm sitting in the locker room with Emmitt Smith, Darren Woodson. Every now and then Troy Aitman pops up, you know, Michael Irvin to come in, you know, First training camp, Deion Sanders walking around and talking and, you know, pushing the DBs. So, I mean, it's just. Were you starstruck? No. I've I've never been that guy. I, I was only starstruck one time. I might I might tell you about that. <laughs> but, um, no, it was just good to be out there with those quality guys, just get out there and, you know, okay, well, you think you're pretty good. Let's see how good you really are. You know, and that's, again, another level, an, the next challenge. And that's kind of what I predicated my life on let's not settle for being okay let's not settle for being good Uh, if can I be great here can I be outstanding here can I be fantastic that's what you know always looking to be better so took that same foundation took that same work ethic and went out there and just show
0: what I can do do you have a favorite memory of that time with the Cowboys because you were also on hard knocks
1: the that was fun that was interesting to me uh, I don't know. If, I, let me think. It's, it's just a it's a trio of moments because, you know, I built some good built some good relationships with the guys we came in with and just seeing all of us grow. And I think, you know, he, we still talk about it to this day. Um, Andre Gerard, he was the center. You know, he played a like probably I think he went to uh, numerous, numerous Pro Bowls and we were coming in. You know, he was a guard center, you know, type guy. came out of Colorado and we kind of hit it off right off the bat. And we were just one day we were sitting there talking with roommates. He said, we're going to he said, we're going to be the next Larry and Emmett. And I said, no, we're going to be the next Andre and Woody. And he said that has stuck with him. Like every time we talk, he brings it up. He said it reminds him that I'm Andre Gerard. You know, I'm going to be the best Andre Gerard, period. So, you know, just having those talks with them, you know. He was one, Pete Hunter, you know, Devron Johnson. Uh Roy Williams, he was another one in our crew, you know, cuz we all came in together. So, we just had a nice bond and pushing each other on the field. Especially, you know, me and me and me Dev and Pete, we were the we were our skill players on offense, you know. Roy was on the other side. So, we would always push each other to to win. I mean, to be the best. If we got conditioning tests we're destroying the conditioning test. Where everybody else just passing it, we're destroying the conditioning. You're excelling. Yes. So that was that was, that was was fun for us. But um, maybe just getting out there and getting on the field and showing the guys that I can play. And I remember, I think it was the first scrimmage against the Texans. I think I opened up some eyes, even when I, cause something happened and had a play and I kind of leaked out the backfield. Chad threw me the ball. I caught it. And I took off down the sideline. And I remember, you know, eventually I got pushed out and play was called back for holding. But I remember coming to the sideline and like Emmett's eyes were as big as grapefruits. He was like, Where did you get that speed from? <laughs> <laughs> what you mean? But um, just re- really beginning to see the guys like, okay, that guy can play. Then the coaches start saying, You know, that guy can play. If you think about the uh, play on hard knocks where. I was still learning how to catch punts. I was horrible at it, you know. You know, I actually dropped that punt, was able to pick it up, and then, you know, end up turning the punt return into about a, a 40 or 50-yard return. And I'm watching the, watching the play, because I, I didn't hear him say it, but as watching, you watching on Hard Knocks, Coach Arizano says um, – that was a heck. He was saying it. That, that's a heck of a play. I mean, that guy's a football player. I don't know what the heck to do with him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you this, find a spot for him somewhere. Some one of the things. You know, he's he's a football player, and then you know, taking that whole thing of you know getting released and then getting signed to the practice squad. So not getting down, but you know, I'm yeah. I'm, how difficult was that? It wasn't. Everyone has now a that role. That doesn't
0: make sense for most people that's going to hear that. That
1: you would think you would be. Very disappointed. I'm already an undrafted free agent. So, <laughs> you know, have a, a pretty prolific college career. But, you know, they don't know what to do. We still we still haven't moved into the mobile quarterback. And, you know, somebody said that, hey, he's, he, he's not accurate. When you look at my Clemson career, i am completed over, almost 70% of my passes. I mean, you know, his arm is not strong enough. You know. To pass the rod, that was probably... 55 in the air. You know, all these dings was coming on me, and it still wasn't. And another one was, you know, hey, I'm not six foot. I'm sorry. Five, ten and a half. Not tall enough, not accurate enough, arms not strong enough. So did a lot of running at Clemson. Hey, it's moving to running back. Matter of fact, I didn't even, I was going to the the senior bowl, didn't know I was going to the senior bowl as a running back until the week before. You know, I played an East West Shrine game, played quarterback, but Senior bowl, I did not know until the week before, so it's one of those things. Of my agent was like, Are we going or not? I was like, No, I'll go because I could have went to Hawaii to the Aloha Bowl because they were going on the same time, you know, they would let me play quarterback. They just wanted me over there, they were just saying, Just come, but I just had to say, They wanted Woody Danzler, right? You need to, he's like, You need to go here, so that was the leading I got, so I went. And just to develop as a going in this situation as a running back when I played quarterback pretty much my whole life, you know, learning different things, having the block and, you know, all it's just it's amazing to step up to that learning curve and be able to start impressing enough for the Cowboys to even free agent. One week of playing running back and I've done enough for them to want to bring me in. And then even though they, they released me, you know, when I, you know, talking to Darren Woodson, he was. He was like, because, you know, got the whole 24-hour waiver. You know, teams can claim before you can come back. He was like, he said, you're not going to clear waivers. Somebody's going to pick you up. I, he said, I, selfishly, I want, you to, I want you here. I hope you stay, but I don't think you're going to clear waivers. You know, fate had it. You know, I cleared waivers. They brought me back on as a, as a um, on the practice squad. So just getting out there, I understand my role. I'm a practice squad. My deal is to still be the best woody dance I could be. So I'm on practice squad and I'm giving – my thing was to give the defense fits. <laughs> <laughs> and I imagine you did. I, and, yeah, that was my thing. I wanted to give them fits because I wanted to be sure – because they're not going to face another – my thing you're not going to face another back like me in the league. If y'all if, – if, if I can do what I do on this practice field for them, they're going to be prepared come, come game day. Yeah. So I'm, I was really genuine about looking at their offense, looking at their running back styles and try to adapt it that week. So I'm running like that running back, you know, to make sure they're getting the truest look. But every now and then I throw a little wrinkle in where I'll stop, cut back, reverse field, and go back the other way, you know, just to give them a little little something to keep them on their pursuit angles. So, but, yeah. And
0: you mentioned punt return. I look at that and think that's got to be the hardest thing to do, to catch a punt and try to be prepared to run, knowing that you've got a team of guys coming tackling you and you've got to focus on catching the ball and you mentioned mm-hmm. it's very difficult So what is so difficult about it from your
1: perspective out there you can't read that's what it boils down to and i'll i'll i explain that by saying this you know a lot of people say that reading is difficult if you think about a a an individual a grown person trying to learn how to read for the first time if you know how to you learn those fundamentals if once i learn how to read the ball and, you know, watching it, you know, finding that gap, I can watch it off the center, the, the, the punter's foot. If I see him turn a certain way, I know he's going to angle it this way so I can get a jump start on the ball. And I get over there, you know, if the ball is on a spiral, if it's a right footed kicker, if it's a spiral and it turns over, it's going to carry. So I need to get back deeper. If it sits up on its end, wherever that point is, if it's like this, you know, it's going to drop short and that way. So I know where the ball is going before it gets there so I can get to the spot, set myself up if I need to take another glance at the people coming down to know if I need a fair catch or not. So it was really simple once I learned how to read the ball. <laughs> you say it's simple,
0: but it yeah. doesn't
1: look too simple. It is. It was, it's just one of those things And once you figure it out, then I, you know, hand placement, where to make sure the ball drops on my head, I'm underneath the ball and I catch it. You know, once I figured all that out, it was just. Then it became it just, natural to it you? It became natural. It became very natural. When you look back at, say, that highlight
0: of you returning that kickoff return for a touchdown against the 49ers, when you're tiptoeing down the sideline, mm-hmm. do you look at that and
1: question, how in the world did I do that? <laughs> I'll tell you how. Joe Arizona, <laughs> he was the, uh he was our special teams coach at the time. He was very good with words. <laughs> He knew how to use words like knives and cut you apart. So, honestly, what happened on that play, I went the wrong way. (laughs) The play was designed to go left. I was running left, and I thought I saw a lane backside, so I was going to take advantage of it, so I cut back. And it closed up. And as I'm getting hit, you can see as I'm getting hit, people bouncing off, and I'm spinning, at that moment, I can remember vividly in my mind, I need to get at least about 10 more yards or something. I need to get some more yards because I don't want him to fuss at me that bad. You know, cause film room on, on, uh, on Mondays were brutal. If <laughs> you do your job, I mean, he would, he would make you feel every mistake. And I was like, I got to get more yards. So. Again, that guy's bouncing and that's off. that's going of me. through your head. That's going right through at, my, that at that moment, I'm thinking I need more yards because I don't want him yelling at me Monday. And, you know, get free from that wave. And then the Cardinal sin, I see the kicker. You never get tackled by the kicker. That is a Cardinal sin. So there's no way he was bringing me down. And then I start to see, you know, a couple of my guys start to form itself. So I get past the kicker, and I saw another guy coming to tackle me, but I see my blocker come. So I just cut back here, and I saw that, saw the sideline. I know it wasn't, I couldn't go out of bounds. I said, if I get back inside this block, there's no one that's going to catch me. So, and that's how it unfolded. And I scored a touchdown, come back to the sideline, and he's got this look on his face. And he said, do you even know? What? He said, which way was the, um, which way was the um, return supposed to go? I said, left. He said, good job. <laughs> it's like, I mean, really, what could you say? So, but um, yeah, it was, it was one of those things. It just, it just happened. And that, was, and that was just one of those things where I talk about, you know, I talk to people, not bragging. Because, you know, I, t- I t- spoke to you earlier about my insecurities. Yes. It wasn't the fact that when I stepped on the football field, I, I, just, I made plays. I made plays like that. And that was a norm for me. And that was a further testament to when God is in it, you know, spectacular things happen. So, so that, true. that was why I was able to really, you know, get the belief of my teammates and, you know, they trusted me. And it was just one of those things that I became a focal part, not a, I can say a focal part, an intram- integral part of that team just by the way I carried myself, the way I prepared my professionalism and, you know, the standards that I set for myself. And
0: how was it then when you made that decision to stop pursuing a professional career? Was that a difficult one, and did you struggle with the transition of now trying to find your
1: next chapter in life? I struggled a little bit, and it got me in trouble. You know, it got me in trouble just a little bit. You know, right after I left Chicago, you know, I got comfortable in the sporting arena, and trying to stick with it at all costs. I ended up making a decision to sign, not sign, sign on with a team as a coach slash marketing person, just to stay in the comfort of, of sports. It didn't pan out. It actually panned out miserably. So, but um, I was able to bounce back from it, taught me a lesson, and it pushed me to move into, again, that next chapter. What's my next chapter? Because at that moment, it was, okay. I got a wife. I got two kids, two small kids. Um, I don't care what I gotta do. I gotta bring money in and make sure my family's taken care of. Yeah, life is a little bit different yes. with a family. So, jumped on that board and just kind of got traction. And as I went through, you know, I was able to ultimately get to a place to where I can get, where my wife can, has the option to work. You know, she hasn't, she's not working now. So, I was able to do that and, you know, really take care of my family and actually be there for my family as well. So, well, and you obviously mentioned that that that's very
0: important for you to be Mm. there with your family and wrapping up here, then Woody, I want to make sure that we can even explore some other words of wisdom that has meant a lot to you. You've already shared a lot Mm. and, but is there any other type of words of wisdom or life advice that has meant a lot to you
1: that you would like to share? My platform is choice. So that's my, that's my, that's my big ticket item, so to speak. Because I'm a firm believer that no matter what's going on, no matter the situation, no matter what has happened, you have a choice. You have a choice to choose to do what's right or choose not to do it. You know, choose to follow your heart, follow your passion. I'll choose to stay in comfort. But, you know, I remember talking to my kids and we were talking about choice and I was talking, you know, because I teach middle school at my church now, um, well, high school. Now we have in small groups so on Sundays I'm teaching there and we're talking about the choices that you make. And I said, let me ask you a question. Let's say a guy busts in here, comes right through that door right there, lines up all of us on line us up on the wall, pulls out his gun and say, hey, right now, either you deny Jesus. or I'm gonna put a bullet in your head. And his response was well i guess i don't got no choice i'm gonna um i'm I'm gonna and i said no you always have a choice you know it's just a matter when you make that choice are you comfortable with the what comes after that choice what what comes from that choice so that's the thing we really start to dig into choice so you know once you make a choice understand that you are fully responsible for that choice so those two things choice and responsibility you know you make your choice and you're fully responsible for what happens after that so a lot of kids you know never knew my dad you know i grew up poor or whatever have you whatever that excuse you know we don't do i do got time for excuses we're grown at some point you got to put away the excuses take responsibility for your life and your choices so choice and responsibility you know they're yours own them accept it and walk in them so that's my that's my deal Well, those are great words of wisdom and understanding,
0: again, the aspect of consequences, but controlling the input. And you had even mentioned that, you know, Mm -hmm. earlier as well. The other question. So
1: where were you starstruck then? (laughs) (laughs) I guess I could share this. We are, you know, I I love music. That's another thing. My wife and I, we both share that passion for music, you know, different artists. And I grew up Listening to all time I like singers. So one particular in my in in particular one, one singer in particular, you know, I really she's one of my favorites. So we're having you know after Emmett broke the record, um, Jerry had a party for him. I mean, you think about Jerry Jerry Jones throwing a party. So exactly, you, you got all these people here. You know, I think Jeffrey Osborne performed. I think the Gap Band was there. What was it? Tommy, the comedian, Tommy Davidson, I think that's his name. He was there. Oh, he yeah, was, the comedian. Yeah, he was there. And it was, matter of fact, I think Bill Cosby actually introduced. I mean, it's just, and then we're sitting here and Jerry's talking. He said, Well, okay. I got a special guest for M.A. It's one of his favorite people. And I know he's going to enjoy this next part. And then all of a sudden you hear this voice coming from the speakers. Immediately I knew who it was. And I just, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" <laughs> uh, and she not I mean, she was singing, and she came. She came around. I mean, like I said, as well, so soon as she started singing, I knew exactly who it was. It was Patti LaBelle. And to be able to meet her, talk with her, take a picture with her, it was just, it was, it was, it was special. It was, to it was special to me because you know I, I, I really admired her. She's one of my. She's still to this day one of my favorite singers. That's great. Well, Woodrow Danzer the <laughs> Third, it's me. been a pleasure.
0: Yes, it has. Having That's you share awesome. more about your journey, your life, your story, sports, how it's intertwined in your life. And I greatly appreciate your
1: time. Thank you for your time. Thank you for inviting me. I
0: really appreciate it. Passion can be a tricky thing, and sometimes we can excel at things that might not necessarily be our true passion. And as with Woody, his passion might not have been the broad term of sports or football, but one of the reasons that he excelled is because he was passionate about not letting people down on a team when they depended on him. And long before the recent success of the Clemson football program, many Clemson fans were passionate about watching Woody play because you never knew when you might see magic. So it was such an honor to spend time with him as I remember the excitement of watching him play and now what an amazing gift he's given me by investing his time to be our 50th guest on the podcast. I sincerely thank him and all of you who have invested your time and listened on this crazy podcast journey. Now that finishes episode 50 and remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone.
1: You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich
0: sports. Thanks for listening.